Osiris's production on the Osiris Podcast Network. thee well, Neil Casal. As most of you know, he passed away recently. Neil touched a lot of lives with his music, and his loss hits us real hard. We're not alone in that, which is a comfort. And I'm also glad to be able to talk with Kevin and Eduardo. But man, we have lost too many people lately. For whatever reason, it's easy to get overwhelmed. Look, I've been there. I understand, and I don't judge. And I also know that when you're down, it can be tough to connect to anything. But please, if you're struggling, reach out. You can even drop me a line. I'm not even kidding. You know, I'm also glad we're talking about American Beauty, because this is the music we turn to for comfort. There's healing in these grooves. Also, acceptance with the possibility of transformation. Because the truth of impermanence is that everything is in flux. We grow, we change, and when our time is up, we fade away. There is beauty in that, and that's what this record reveals. Also, it's just plain fun, and we'll take that anytime we can get it. And speaking of fun, you should know that Nugs.net is the live music app featuring over 15,000 shows from your favorite bands on demand and ad-free. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. You can download music to listen to offline and create playlists to share with your friends. As live music fanatics, the folks at Nugs.net are offering our listeners a free 30-day trial. Listen free for 30 days and cancel anytime. Visit nugs.net slash dead to me to get started. Well, I think it's time for us to get started too. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. All right, gang, we are here to talk about the fabulous American beauty from 1970. But before we get going, I just really want to touch on a tragedy in the family, so to speak, that's affected a lot of folks, including the people who put together this here podcast. I'm talking about the loss of Neil Casal. Kevin and I really bonded one afternoon when Neil Casal came over to Kevin's house to tape a conversation that would become episode five of season one of yeah. Dead to Me. And it was a powerful moment for us personally. Uh, it was a transformative moment for the show. But most importantly, it was an opportunity to really just spend some time with this sweet, interesting person. And for people who don't, no, like our old house was a, a place where things like that happened, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it was set up to be a, uh, a welcoming, safe space. And so we had artists in and out of there frequently over the years. And when they were there, we consider you friend, family. Yeah. This is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. But unfortunately, the other thing happened and uh, it doesn't feel like that's how it was supposed to be. But the one thing that I keep coming back to was, you know, how joyous that day was. We came together to talk about something that we loved. We weren't necessarily talking about what Neil Casal was up to with the CRB. Mm -hmm. 
we were talking about how he got into the Grateful Dead and what the Grateful Dead meant for him and what it might mean for people coming to the band for the first time through guys like Neil Casal and the amazing music that he made, not just with CRB, but with Circles Around the Sun. Yeah. Ryan Adams and the Cardinals, Beechwood Sparks, Cass McCombs, you name it. I mean, the guy got around and he was very gifted and he was very humble. And it was a real joy to have him with us that afternoon. And look, I don't know what he was going through, but I do know that I was happy to be there with him Mm -hmm. discussing this stuff. And I do believe that it was a bright spot, you know, maybe in his life at that moment. And it certainly was a bright spot for us although it was raining like a motherfucker at the time. (laughs) You know, it was an opportunity to really get into why he was doing this in the first place, you know, going out and playing music night after night, which can be a real, real grind after a while. Uh, But it was really good to reconnect on something that we all love and admire, which is the work of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we thank Neil, and we'll miss Neil. And with that, you know, let's get going with the episode. And I... I think we can turn this beat around by uh, diving into a mailbag. So we have one David Martin who writes to us and says, Gentlemen, I enjoy the podcast immensely and I've been following the albums, listening to each before and after every episode this season. That's the way to do it, kids. Thanks for enhancing the journey. I want to share one thought I had about this week's Working Man's Review. You spoke effusively about the space present in Black Peter without mentioning a critical element that made the airy quality possible, Mickey's absence. I believe that in the one-drummer era of the dead, both the live shows and recordings benefit from the diminishing weight of the double-drummer approach. This isn't to say I feel that Mickey's presence before or after is a negative, but simply that to be the thing that they became on these early 70s albums, he had to be absent. I'm looking forward to American Beauty and Beyond. Consider breaking your own rules and detouring into the new original songs on Skull and Roses in Europe 72, since they were never recorded in the studio like they should have been. Well, David, I do have to agree there. Mickey supposedly plays percussion on American Beauty, but it's really all about the Kreutzmann Shuffle. And Billy comes even more to the forefront on the upcoming official live releases. And David mentions Europe 72 and Skull and Roses, which I think we'll probably find a way to talk about this season. I want to point out, too, I, I did a little research in this. So Dave is a guitarist in a band called Raising the Dead. Yeah, man. Out of Detroit, uh, right here in the Midwest. So maybe they'll get up here to Milwaukee, but you know, if you are in Detroit, head out and, uh, head out and catch them. There's more dead cover bands in this part of the country than I could have ever imagined. It's, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. You can just graze on yes, dead okay. cover bands. Exactly. <laughs> so let's get back to American Beauty. A little history to set things up. Way back in July of 1970, the Dead joined the Festival Express, which was a Canadian choo-choo train adventure that also included the band, Janis Joplin, and the Flying Burrito Brothers. The train stopped at a handful of Canadian cities from Montreal to Vancouver. A few of those shows were spoiled by entitled kids demanding free concerts, (laughs) and there was also some weird weather. But on board, it was a party. Uh, Janice famously cajoled Jerry into getting really fucking drunk, which wasn't his thing at all. Oh, and they also dosed some Mounties with LSD-spiked birthday cake. Good times. 
when they got back that August, the band rolled into Wally Hyder's studio to record American Beauty. And they didn't have their regular engineering team with them who were out on another touring festival, the Medicine Ball Caravan, which the dead backed out of at the last minute. So Stephen Barncard was the new victim behind the boards. Actually, he said the dead were super easy to work with at that time. I guess nobody asked him for thick air. <laughs> well, actually, no, I, I think he, he was aware of the thick air. And in fact, uh, the way he mic'd them, he said, so they cut the tracks in about a week and a half. They came in rehearsed, right? Yeah. They had all this stuff. And then he said, well, I just set them facing each other and then experimented with having them all sing into one mic for the harmonies and three mics and everything. So he could specifically like manipulate the air. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So there you have it. There's an actual takeaway from the thick air request yeah yeah Experiment. that's great I, I think that was common knowledge in the industry at this point they're like oh shit <laughs> right. dead are coming. but you know he said barncard said that the dead had the vocals nailed on american beauty and i got to agree uh fun fact he was also producing david crosby's if only i could remember my name at the same time uh they would track the dead sessions in the afternoon and then go all night with the cross album so you know, that must have been a real trip. Well, you can really hear both how well prepared they were to do the, the vocal harmonies that the songs here require. And you can also immediately see why keeping those harmonies that tight for the next 25 years might prove challenging. <laughs> yeah, and part of that is because the songs are still a little weird and the harmonies aren't entirely conventional. But one thing is for sure, American Beauty shows a confident, relaxed, and most of all, prepared Grateful Dead, which, judging from some of the albums prior, is still kind of a new thing and everything kicks off with an incredibly gorgeous song box of rain which is about coping with loss and the ephemeral nature of existence i think we all project our own understanding of this stuff onto this song um when I was a little kid, my mom was grieving the death of her best friend from high school who died of a brain tumor. And my mom was only 20 when she had me, so it wasn't distant history at that point. And Box of Rain was part of her coming to terms with all that. So even when I wasn't ahead, I was always dialed into that aspect of the song. And we know that Hunter wrote the lyrics specifically for Lesh, whose dad was passing at that time. You know, Box of Rain is often presented in exactly those terms, right? This is a song about mourning and about loss and, and about the loss of Phil Lesh's dad. And it was also a time when the dead were just experiencing death and a kind of adulthood for the first time. But mm -hmm. I'll say, as a younger listener, I didn't understand how this song could help a person. Yeah. I just sort of thought it's this abstract thing and I don't know what it's saying. Right. Um, as an older person, it seems really clear to me that the way to understand death is to focus on that box of rain. The emptiness of it and uh, sharing as well, you know, sharing that feeling of grief, which we all experience one way or another. And you're absolutely right. The band was going through this stuff at that time. Jerry Garcia's dad obviously had died when he was much younger, but he had recently lost his mom. And he said of this period, with American Beauty, there was this rash of parent deaths where mm -hmm. everybody's parents croaked in the space of about two or three months. It was just tragedy city, bad news every day, really. And yet they managed to make something incredibly beautiful out of all that. <laughs>
shining, birds are winging, no rain is falling from a heavy sky.
this line of you know it's all a dream we dreamed one afternoon long ago yeah super heavy or such a long long time to be gone and a short time to be there and it comes at the end so if you're working through it and you're grieving is a process obviously but that unlocks it and connects all of us together that like we we all come from some primordial place yeah and i think it's interesting that hunter is already talking about life having a dreamlike quality it appears and then it vanishes just as mysteriously as it arrives yes and oftentimes that outlook surfaces in songs that characterize the passage of time and personal loss and i think stella blue would be another one yeah so these are songs about impermanence that have nonetheless stood the test of time and box of rain certainly has although i have heard that the band was a little bit befuddled by it musically bill kreutzman talked about how uh lesh's musical compositions tend to not resolve where you think that they would and so Mm. i think from a tracking perspective this one might have been a little bit slippery compared to a more straightforward song like ripple that's fine though because I think well A I think the album needed it yeah uh, I think it is the perfect opener I agree I mean Phil's voice might be a little awkward compared to Jerry showing up on track two with Friend of the Devil but it really is a powerful opener for sure this feels like something that just sort of existed and the Grateful Dead just sort of channeled it through yeah because it's so unlike anything else in their catalog it's the polar opposite of what they were doing live yep uh, and it has songs like this on it that are purely vehicles for hunters poetry and in this case paired with phil lesh's uh journey through grief so i think to that point there's a lot of things on this album that are completely out of character for the band right so jerry's yeah. primarily on the steel guitar on the pedal steel um right. you've got you've got a long list of guests right grisman is on this i think howard wales pops up a little bit on trucking there's mm-hmm. you know a lot of the the musical heavy lifting here is not done by the core members of the band right and it opens with this weird fill tune that I think to your point, Casey, like it has a sort of a weird leading chord progression and then doesn't really, you know, the other songs on here follow a fairly familiar American songbook kind of typical one, four, five progression. Yeah. Sort um, of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 there's some exceptions to that, but there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the meat and bones, the structured songs yeah. are really sort of. You know, they're the songs you're going to want to learn if you're in a Grateful Dead cover band. Yeah, and probably even Box of Rain, which is why it's so interesting that Phil can take all of these unconventional, avant-garde, compositional ideas and sort of tamp them down into a beautiful ballad about impermanence. And another thing, especially coming out of an examination of Working Man's Dead, where Garcia and Hunter composed all of the songs, here you have Hunter working with other members of the band, including Phil Lash on Box of Rain, but also Bob Weir. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with songs like Sugar Magnolia. And um, honestly, I love Bob Weir from around 1970 to 72. I think that's peak Weir. I can reveal this now, but we're going to do an Osiris Network crossover with Jonathan Hart of Broke Down Podcast to talk about the dead adjacent solo records from this period, which of course includes uh, Bobby's excellent solo debut. Ace. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ace. It's an amazing record. Uh, but there's some key Bobby moments on American Beauty, including Sugar Magnolia and obviously Truckin', the latter of which Hunter wrote about the band's notorious New Orleans drug bust. 
Uh, you don't necessarily look to the dead for narrative verity, but this is pretty much a true account of that incident. And the other crazy thing is that the setup was apparently masterminded by District Attorney Jim Garrison, who spent a lot of time and energy trying to prove that the JFK assassination was indeed a conspiracy. <laughs> the original QAnon. Does trucking seem to fit on this record for you guys despite the autobiographical nature i think it does i mean it's definitely more of a boogie rock chuglin kind of number which probably might have made more sense for working man's dead but i like it here for sure Mm -hmm. and like we mentioned in the last episode this is when the dead really do start to self-mythologize and i think trucking is totally key to that Mm -hmm. oh and i just want to say if mickey has gone missing has anyone thought to check the grassy knoll (laughs) (laughs) but i do agree with kevin that trucking is definitely not the amorphous psychedelic experience of say mountains of the moon or even Candyman from this record but it does chug right along and in that way i think it has something in common with sugar magnolia also from american beauty that's an interesting one because it's where we start to see some friction with the hunter weir collaboration Bobby bristled at not being able to rework the words to fit where he wanted them to go with the music. And Hunter was dismayed at what he originally wrote as a sweet love song becoming a raucous grind in live performance. Yes, absolutely. But I do think that what ended up on the record is really perfect. Mm-hmm. So let's give a listen. Blossoms blooming, that's all empty and I don't care So my baby down by the river Who should have to come up soon for air Sweet blossom, come on, under the willow We can have high times if you look back We can discover the wonders of nature Rolling in the rushes down by the riverside She's got everything delightful She's got everything I need Takes the wheel when I'm seeing double Pays my ticket when I speak Skimming through rays of violet She can wait in the drop of dew She don't come and I don't follow Waits backstage while I sing to you But she can dance a cage and a rhythm Jump like a widow's in four-wheel drive She's a summer love in the spring, fall, and winter She can make happy any man alive Sugar magnolia, ringing like bluebird, caught up in sunlight, going out singing, I walk in the sunshine. Come on, honey, come along with me. She's got everything delightful. She's got everything I need. A breeze in the pines in the sun and light moonlight, crazy in the sunlight, yes indeed. Sometimes when the cuckoo's crying 
Working Man's Dead, where you were talking about how the songs represented uh, certain like characters that the band members were were taking on and and their identities and stuff. And which one of these guys is the gigolo? <laughs> well, I think we know the answer to that, right? It's the the, <laughs> yeah, we the band the band's Lothario is clearly Mr. Weir. <laughs> it's the guy in jorts. Yes, it's, yeah. It's always the guy in jorts. Fringed leather vest. Oh yeah. No shirt and jorts. Don't forget the buckskin. Yep, buckskin. <laughs> Well, I think um, what sticks out for me now is like, God, this codependency. You know, she takes the wheel when he's seeing double. Like, he shouldn't be driving. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I got to tell you a story. So when I was a kid, a young guy, I took the LSD Uh fairly frequently. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, we were driving late night on a winding road in rural Maine. So this isn't exactly the most opportune time to be melting your mind with acid. And she kept imploring me to close my eyes. I was driving the car. She'd be like, no, you got to do it. It's amazing. (laughs) You just got to do it. And I was like, no, come on, man. And so I would pretend to close my eyes a little bit. But of course, you know, she was on acid. So she was super dialed in. And she's like, you're not doing it. You're not closing your eyes. So I don't know if I was seeing double, but I was is definitely peering into other dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> Relatable content. Yeah. Um, that's your PSA right there. Don't do drugs. And if you do, don't listen to your girlfriend when she tells you to close your eyes while driving on acid. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting for me about this song is that, first of all, like it evolves into this like show stomping, you know, sort of total rocker in the live setting. Yeah. Um, here it's sort of chased a little bit. And it seems like this sweet idea of like, this is a song that goes out to sort of all of Bobby's coterie. <laughs> yeah. Would you say to all the girls? <laughs> girls I've loved before or are yet to love as soon as this set yeah, wraps up. That's right. <laughs> you know, I really dig the sunshine daydream part at the end. It gives it a kick in the pants for the coda. And that was an interesting thing live because sometimes they wouldn't play it with the rest of the song. You know, they'd wait a few tunes and then drop sunshine daydream or maybe in another show entirely. Yeah. But I do like the way it is here too. It's very sweet and almost innocent. It's also got its mirror universe two songs later in Candyman. Yeah, it's like cocaine mirror universe. In the context of the 60s and and as we roll into the 70s, certainly, it can't be seen as anything other than that skeezy drug dealer guy. Yeah, it always struck me as sort of like the Grateful Dead's version of the Velvet Underground song, Waiting for the Man. It's got that whole kind of clammy, itchy quality. Yeah. And the guy in Boogie Nights who's throwing down the firecrackers (laughs) and the drug dealer. Yeah, Alfred Molina. It's Cosmo. He's Chinese. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It's definitely a trip. It takes me back quickly to your question about whether trucking fits in here, Kevin. And I think that, oh. uh, you know, I th- there's a question of whether it fits musically. Trucking until the morning comes are a little... On the nose, maybe? Yeah. But in terms of the substance, I always think of this album as being sort of a lasting and definitive statement about things that are transient. And Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the joy of love, sex, drugs. Mm-hmm. And some songs might seem throwaway 
at least superficially. Yeah. I do love Pigpen's operator, which he composed himself. And you mentioned Till the Morning Comes, mm-hmm. which has become something of an in-joke in my house. Uh, I say to my wife all the time, you're my woman now. Make yourself easy. Because <laughs> that's just the kind of cult leader I am. <laughs> but on a more serious note, I'm thinking again of those themes of impermanence or emptiness that we talked about with Box of Rain. They show up again in Addicts of My Life. It reminds me of a Zen koan that says, show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. And I think of lyrics like, in the attics of my life, full of cloudy dreams. There's the dreams again. Unreal, full of tastes no tongue can know, and lights no eye can see. When there was no ear to hear, you sang to me.
I was thinking about this and also thinking about some of the ideas that you play with in the Burroughs book, Casey, about the idea of language as a virus. Uh Uh-oh. And I kept getting tripped up on the idea that, like, here Robert Hunter is, like, doing his best to use words to get at truths that words can't possibly hope to capture. Yeah, I call it making the ineffable effable. Yeah. And it leaves me wondering, like, well, maybe there is some truth to that idea of language as a virus, because it's just challenging us to put things into words that words cannot possibly capture. Mm. I mean, that's what makes me think Hunter was on some Eastern trip, because it's kind of like trying to convey something of non-duality using dualistic means. And words are always dualistic because they point at something. There's the other Zen aphorism that says enlightenment is a finger pointing at the moon. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that one of the recurring motifs here is this idea of like the impossible thing, mm. the ripple in still water, uh, you know, the fountain that was not made by the hands of man, mm-hmm. the lights no eye can see. Yeah. It works as a mission statement for the dead in terms of saying, if you cannot accept the things that you can't accept, then you're not really living. And I'm glad we all are. And I'm glad you guys are too. And that's our episode. Find us online, deadtomepod.com, our socials, at deadtomepod. And keep those letters coming. Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. (laughs) 